This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line today is Dr Jerome Saras, who's a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne in the Department of Psychiatry. And he's also an Adjunct Fellow, a Research Fellow at the Centre for Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University of Technology. Welcome, Jerome. Thank you, great to be with you, Andrew. <laughs> First, tell me about your history, because I've seen your career blossom over the past decade, or maybe a little bit longer than that. It's very exciting. Blossoming. Well, that's 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 fantastic. Um, uh, look, absolutely. Look, it has been quite a ride, and I suppose. Look, I started out back in the early nineties, which probably gives away my age a bit. Uh, at uh, ACNM, started off actually studying massage and aromatherapy in a wooden shed. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny enough, when I was completing uh, school, yeah. uh, not when I was eight years old, and um, yeah, I just went through a, a bit of a, a roller coaster of learning and ended up. Uh, being a, or practicing as a naturopath and as an acupuncturist, and then went on to uh, do more academic work. So uh, that I enjoyed it more than clinical work. So I went on to do a master's and then uh, a doctorate in the field of psychiatry at UQ, and then was uh, lucky enough to go over to for my postdoc down to Melbourne University, and also spent some time over at Harvard Medical School. So it's been been quite a, a journey, and um, really just all concerning my passion, which is. Uh, mental health and having an integrative and complementary medicine approach to better people's mental health uh, and to uh, treat psychiatric disorders. So it's been quite a journey and one which is still going on. Yeah. Uh, tell me about how you were accepted into psychiatry at University of Queensland, because it's not very common that that happens. Yes, look, it's one of those things where I think there is a stigma which really shouldn't necessarily be of as much concern as it can be for the complementary medicine profession that we really feel as if, uh, you know, we are outsiders. In some ways we are, but I did actually find it quite accepting in terms of meeting up with some really great uh, professors and fantastic supervisors in the area of psychiatry and, and also ones connected to psychology. And um, look, as long as, you know, you're a, you're a reasonably bright person, as long as you work hard, you're passionate, uh, and, and you can actually apply scientific methodology, uh, to the research which you're doing, mm. certainly they, they're very open and very welcoming. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about two facets of many that exist in psychiatric illness, um, but two which commonly present to practitioners um, for help in their clinics, and that's anxiety and depression. And, you know, each of those has their own um, set of symptoms and, and, um, and variations. So I might talk about differential diagnosis a little bit later, but let's go into straight into depression now. When you're talking about depression, what sort? What are the major presenting symptoms that you'll actually see in a patient? Well, according to uh, diagnostic criteria, it's important for clinicians to recognise two key attributes, and that's one to screen patients if they're experiencing a low mood. So basically, they're not happy. They're reporting that they're that they obviously, yeah, in basic terms, have a low mood. The second one is that they have a loss of pleasure or interest in life. So according to guidelines, uh, they'll usually have a combination of one or both of those key symptoms uh, ongoing for over two weeks. Mm-hmm. So it isn't necessarily to do with a labile affect in terms of just sort of having a crappy day. It's an ongoing presentation of low mood and or 
loss of pleasure. Uh, and it usually be accompanied by signs and symptoms such as poor sleep. Uh, people may be over or under eating. Uh, maybe a case that they may feel a lack of self-worth, uh, be pessimistic in life, have potentially suicidal ideation. So it's very important to screen if there are any uh, suicidal thoughts or plans. Uh, it's also important to screen for if a person has any high uh, points, so sort of hypomanic or, or manic presentations, because they may actually be presenting in a depressive phase of bipolar disorder. Um, but you know, there's lots, there's a range of signs and symptoms, and uh, I think it's important to really focus on those two um, in terms of a clinician having, uh, I suppose, a basic understanding of, of depression and its diagnosis. Mm. And just a quick question about red flags, the suicidal ideation and a potential mm-hmm. to be um, to have a symptomatology presenting where it might actually be bipolar rather than depression. What, what uh, advice would you give to naturopathic clinicians to say this is appropriate time to refer? Well, as I said, I mean, the, the problem which we're getting, and this also happens in general practice, is a person may be coming in in a depressive phase of, uh, of their bipolar disorder. Um, so it's important to screen for if they have had any manic symptoms. So it's as simple as asking, you know, have you had a period of time um, outside your depression whereby you may have had a period of, say, racing thoughts of... Uh, grandiosity of in- increased goal setting, decreased sleep, uh, increased activities such as uh, sexual activities, spending. Um, now, minor variations of that, you know, are not necessarily that troubling. It's when it actually interferes with a person's life, yeah. uh, and to the point where, uh, for example, they may actually have some psychotic presentations. Uh, in which case, usually the person uh, may end up being hospitalised. So. Um, in terms of if you start seeing psychotic symptoms, uh, then absolutely referral is a must. Um, but um, it's very important, I think, just generally, if dealing with more of the severe mental illness, such as uh, bipolar type 1 disorder, where a person, as I said, may have manic hospitalizable uh, symptoms, also conditions such as schizophrenia, uh, that, that really is an integrative approach um, in concert with a medical practitioner. How would you differentiate between depression as a diagnosis and unhappiness or sadness? Sure. Well, I mean, you could do an entire podcast on that. Uh, <laughs> certainly from an existential position, uh, we all go through sadness. Uh, you know, some, some basic melancholia is, is part of the human condition. Uh, but it has to be differentiated from clinical depression, uh, whereby a person you know, will have ongoing uh, levels of low mood or, or, or loss of a pleasure in life. Um, and look, sometimes it, this may be linked uh, to a grieving process. Now, current diagnosis is saying, well, or diagnostic framework is saying you can still be depressed uh, even within the early stages of grief. Very controversial uh, situation at the moment with that. My personal sense is, and this is, you know, everybody's got a different opinion on it, is that yes, you can actually have a discrete depressive episode co-occurring while a person's grieving. However, you can also have a situation where somebody's grieving and displaying signs and symptoms of depression, but it's not actually a biological clinical depression. Hmm. I think probably the easiest way to tease that apart in terms of what is, say, general sadness or melancholia to do with life events or to do with grieving, to do with uh, the attribute of self-worth. So if a person presents diagnostically with low mood, uh, they've had maybe some rough things going on in their life. And you say, well, how do you feel about yourself? And they say, no, my self-esteem's great. Mm-hmm. No, I feel pretty positive about myself, feel pretty positive about my future. Um, I'm just going through a bit of a rough time. 
well, that's a human condition, and I think that's something which should be supported through psychosocial interventions uh, rather than medication. Great advice. So let's jump into now um, the herbs and nutrients that you've used and, and indeed are researching currently. Tell me about the newer evidence that's sort of presenting itself with regards to... Let's start with fish oil. Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, certainly there has been a lot of research uh, done over the years on omega-3 fish oils for major depressive disorder. Now, this could be uh, as monotherapy, so by themselves versus placebo, uh, or as adjunctive therapies in combination with antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the evidence tends to support omega-3 fatty acids as having a role with improving mood, uh, certainly as adjunctive as well. Um, tends to be even stronger evidence. However, it tends to be the EPA, which is the uh, which is the uh, more of the efficacious uh, fatty acid compared to the DHA. Mm-hmm. So that's where the evidence tends to support uh, is uh, EPA or EPA-rich uh, formulations for depression. Yeah, and and I might just give a little a little, little um, accolade here. Uh, there was some very important done by, um, by Maria McCready's and her Domino Group at Flinders um, Flinders Medical Centre in South Australia on this. Um, so, with regards to fish oil and the you know the high EPA mix, if you like, what dose do you require to get effect, positive effect? Well, this is the thing. I mean, many trials, well, all the trials, I should say, have varying doses. So, there, there's no set answer on what is the ideal dose. But the sort of, I guess you'd say, the rule of thumb, in terms of you weigh up the evidence, is about a gram of EPA per day. Uh, should be sufficient to to get a therapeutic effect. Great. And any caveats with that? Any warnings? Well, not really, except the the overall uh, fish oil advice, which is to have preparations uh, which are uh, enteric-coated, which have vitamin E added, um, so make sure that the fatty acids aren't oxidised, and in some cases vitamin C, because the vitamin C has a protective effect on the the vitamin E. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of types of fish, I mean, most of what I understand tends to be I think sort of anchovies from around processed around Scandinavia. I mean, you know, there's no evidence of saying that wild fish oil or salmon is necessarily better than tuna or tuna is better than anchovies. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's fairly highly purified nowadays. Yeah, I think um, that comes into a sustainability issue rather than the actual well, fats yes, that we get from right. them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so moving on. Next one is probably the best known herb for uh, use in depression. That's St John's wort. What's the evidence with regards to these beautiful preparations? You know, the German phytopharmaceuticals. Um, that have done a lot of the work, and I've got to say, a lot of very good work, versus traditional use of St John's wort. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, look, I mean, this is a vexed point, uh, certainly amongst herbalists. Uh, some people will take the side that, you know, as long as it's the plant, it's got the energetic signature, if you like, it doesn't really matter about the chemicals. Uh, one side of the spectrum, the other side will say, well, at the other end will say, well, look, it's about everything being standardised and replicated. Uh, look, my sense is, uh, as long as if we take a sort of a balanced uh, point on it, it would be that we want to obviously use uh, standardised extracts, having you know enough of the marker compounds. So in the case of St John's Wort, obviously uh, hypericin and the flavonoids, hyperforin also is, is quite is quite active. But as we know, uh, there's been studies showing preparations without hyperforin still having antidepressant effects. Mm. Um, and obviously there's issues with, um, 
you know, uh, you know drug interactions if yeah. there's higher high performance. So I guess the idea is, and this is, this is probably a, an overall comment for for herbal medicine quality, uh, is just to make sure that the extract actually contains you know, the phytochemicals. I mean, we need to have something in there or it's not going to have any effect. Mm. Um, for that, it'd be maybe standardised for a few key markers, uh, not less than a certain amount. Um, and just to make sure when they're doing the HPLC that you can see that it really does have a broad spectrum of the phytochemicals uh, and that some of these, as I said, these active constituents or marker compounds, at least are containing a certain amount. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get it perfect, mm. um, but as long as we can have some quality assurance in that area... Uh, especially with St John's Ward, I think we can be reasonably confident uh, that we're going to get a decent result. Mm. I, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, I think we, we need to give credence and, and homage to the uh, to the beauty and the um, the history of, of the herbal use, um, but we need to bring it into a modern age. So this standardisation issue is, is certainly a double-edged sword. It's not necessarily um, the active, but a marker compound. Well, some of them can be considered active compounds when we do the preclinical research and we see unless we have that particular constituent in there at that particular level, it's not going to be effective. And that is an active, and I think we have to respect that. For example, Sirimarin or the flavonolignans in Samaris thistle. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's other cases where we really don't know what's working and it is ultimately, in most cases, the synergy of the... Uh, you know, all the chemical uh, entities interacting. And that's, that's the beauty of nature, um, is that a lot of the time the components uh, as one whole are, are a lot more potent than individual isolates mm. uh, in terms of efficacy. So you pull one out and it just doesn't seem to have the same effect as, uh, if you like, Mother Nature intended. And yeah. that's just, you know, there's something pretty special. Mm -hmm. Let's moving on now to one that I know that you've got a special place for, and that's um, saffron. We'll move on to your favourite a little bit later, but um, um, <laughs> sure. um, saffron. Tell me about this because this was this. The research on this is quite exciting. Oh, look, it is. It's ongoing. I mean, it has to be said that the the research, from what I can see, is just primarily Iranian, um, which is fine. I mean, it's a traditional Persian medicine. I think we really need to to replicate. A lot of the positive studies are coming out of Iran uh, in other populations. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, some really good evidence for saffron uh, with improving mood. Uh, it's been shown to be equally as efficacious as antidepressants in terms of relieving depression. It's also been shown to uh, have a, an effect uh, beyond placebo. So, you know, certainly very good evidence. can be expensive, but then some studies are showing that you can use the petals uh, and have... Uh, still some effect, you don't have to use the very expensive stigma. Mm -hmm. uh, and look, it's, you know, it's certainly something which I think we'll see increased uh, research and use. So it's mm. yeah, quite an exciting antidepressant. Any caveats, any uh, cautions, contraindications with saffron? Well, apart from cost and quality, and I would be um, obviously looking for extracts which do standardise for um, some of these known actives, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, the crotion and the, the, the uh, saff saffronel. Um, but in terms of uh, cautions, look, it, it tends to be, from what we've seen in traditional medicine, to be more of a stimulating uh, comp uh, stimulating agent. Mm -hmm. So perhaps in people who have comorbid anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, it has been shown in some studies uh, to have an effect beyond placebo in increasing agitation and a little bit of uh, anxiety in some people. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not a bad thing because you're, you're wanting some form of a stimulatory effect in people who have depression. Yeah. 
Um, so I'd probably just caution with yeah, insomnia and anxiety. Yeah, right. Apart from that, should be should be quite safe. Yeah. Uh, and now on to one that I know that you're interested in. That's Albizia Julibrison. Tell me about its common, ah, common name okay. and tell me about uh, some of the yeah. uh, exciting things that are happening with that. Uh, happy Bark, or the uh, Bark of Happiness, uh, just, you know, recently been started to be studied a bit more scientifically. I mean, there's a lot of traditional Persian evidence and uh, Oriental medicine evidence uh, in terms of its use uh, for... Um, mood and anxiety disorders for improving sleep. Uh, there has been some, some animal models and in vitro models uh, showing that it does actually reflect an antidepressant effect and also an anxiolytic effect. Um, and there are some, some nice neurochemical studies showing that it modulates uh, serotonin pathways, increases, uh, so, uh, has binding affinity, I should say, with um, 5-HT, uh, 1A and, and 2C receptors. So there's certainly a serotonergic activity happening with it. And that tends to reflect the animal models, uh, which is sort of showing that, yes, it can have a, a mood-improving effect, a calming effect, uh, but also it's prolonged sleep time uh, as well in animals. So mm-hmm. um, very interesting. We haven't seen any human clinical trials yet, and we'd certainly love to do a human clinical trial on <laughs> somebody gave me funding for it. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, certainly based on some of the preclinical evidence and the traditional evidence, is something which you know is quite an exciting uh, addition, really, to uh, you know to any treatment of probably the presentation where somebody may have more of a uh, know, sleep difficulties, some anxiety, potentially some 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 low mood. It doesn't, I wouldn't have thought, have uh, the the stimulating properties of saffron. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess you'd say it's kind of a nice balance in terms of saffron being a bit more more stimulating for mood. Uh, the uh, are busier having an effect on mood, but perhaps more in a calming way. Mm. And um, a, a beautiful adaptogen that sort of came onto the Australian market in the mid-2000s was rhodiola. And um, it's got some really lovely sort of stress adaptation um, actions. But tell me more about that, Herb. What's your, um, what's your knowledge of this with depression? Because there were some preliminary studies done on this. Sure. Well, I mean, that's the problem uh, with rhodiola. I mean, a lot of the, the research originally uh, was Russian in origin. Mm-hmm. I actually had a supervisor many years ago, had a contact in, in um, St. Petersburg uh, and said, uh, well, that's it. We will try to track him down. We're going to get hold of this Russian research. You know, I sort of could imagine him going through the Kremlin, you know, and sort of trying <laughs> to find this, this ancient uh, Russian, you know, what's all, it's meant to be all on cosmonauts and, I mean, I don't know if they had cosmonauts in all Anyways, that's how old it is. Uh, but, yeah, look, you can't get really hold of that, that particular research. I mean, it sounds very, very positive in theory. There's been uh, one small study um, showing that it has been effective in, in improving mood uh, in major depressive disorder. But it should be said that the placebo response was very flat, which is unusual. Usually people in the placebo group will have um, you know, some drop in their depression because yeah. they're you know, taking something. Yep. Um, and the difference really in terms of the actual effect uh, over time from the rhodiola was, was pretty minor um, in terms of depression. So uh, my personal sense is it's not a strong antidepressant. Mm. I think that if it has, if it's used in combination, say, uh, or comorbidity, I should say, with chronic fatigue uh, or, or, or a person who presents with, you know, really low energy and drive, 
uh, maybe sort of more of your atypical depression, then, yeah, it can be a very valuable addition. It can have some mood-improving uh, effects, um, but probably its primary attribute is as an adaptogen. Yeah, and I, I did like your point there that um, with regards to um, studies um, and how to read studies, how to tease out, you know, the real information from studies. When you see um, either a very low placebo or an extremely high placebo, tell me what sort of red flags wave with you. Yeah, I mean, generally you are expecting some drop in in the placebo group uh, of uh, of depression if they're in a clinical trial. If you get too much of a response with the, the placebo, then you can question potentially whether this group was really clinically depressed. Mm. Um, because people who do have long-standing, ongoing depressive symptoms, as soon as you give them a placebo, they really shouldn't, you know what I mean, feel, feel the best of themselves yes. in their life. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the issue. I mean, there's a point which goes beyond that, um, which is that a lot of the failed trials which we're getting with antidepressants is not so much that the antidepressants don't work, because they do work, and they certainly do work in a lot of people who have more severe levels of depression. The issue is that you get people coming in with sort of that mild to moderate depression, maybe some, uh, maybe not true clinical depression, maybe say they've had a hard week, uh, or you know they're dealing with various sort of psychosocial stressors, um, but it's not necessarily a frank biological depression. Mm-hmm. And those sort of people you know, potentially will not benefit as much from medication. So they're coming into clinical trials because there's a lot of incentives, financial incentives for centres to recruit people. Yeah. They're recruiting the people who, you know, really have maybe done dozens of trials. Some of these people are, are trial aficionados, so they'll go out there and they'll do it for the money. So. The issue is that we're not getting the people who we used to get 20 years ago who really were patient, uh, were medication-naive, depressed patients mm-hmm. who suddenly get an antidepressant and, wow, they get a fantastic effect. We're not getting that with our clinical trials. So it's, it's very hard to tease apart the results from placebo. And I think, you know, to be honest, in some respects, maybe we're getting the same with some of the, the natural product trials. The only thing I'd say is that we probably have an advantage in doing natural product research with depression because a lot of these people you know haven't tried or don't want to try antidepressants so at least when you come in with a, a medication be it natural or otherwise they will actually you've got a chance to actually see whether it is having a biological effect hmm. um so let's move over to a very common nutraceutical that's used and that's s-adenosyl methionine or SAMI. Um, in depression and certainly chronic pain. Tell me about your use with that because you're doing some research at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're doing some quite exciting research in, in uh, concert or support uh, from Biocuticals and, and the Blackmores Institute. We're, we're quite excited with that partnership because we've produced a very high-quality uh, SAMI preparation, which also has in it uh, active folic acid, which is, uh, in this case, folinic acid. Um, and... The clinical study which we're doing at the moment is actually comparing SAMI uh, versus a combination nutraceutical containing SAMI, 5-HTP, uh, EPA, uh, the esters form, uh, as well as uh, zinc picolinate, which is quite absorbable, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just a little bit of the trace elements which help with the, the pharmacokinetics. So that study is ongoing, and we want to see whether, compared to placebo, we can get an effect... Uh, in one group who will be taking uh, antidepressants to see they're still depressed, 
the taking antidepressants, can we actually improve these people who you tend to have quite severe levels of depression? And also we're looking at it in a group which aren't taking any medication at all. So very exciting at the moment doing that. Um, but in terms of SAMI itself, um, there's some very good evidence uh, that it is, as a monotherapy, quite a, a robust and potent antidepressant and also can improve people's response to antidepressants. So people are taking medication, quite depressed, still aren't getting the result which they need. Uh, it tends to have an effect even beyond placebo. And just lastly, a point on a couple of herbs which you know I think practitioners get a little bit confused about. Um, traditionally, hops was sort of contraindication in de- contraindicated in depression, and kava is commonly used for anxiety, um, yeah. and yet you know you get an anxiety component of depression. So, can you talk talk a little bit about use contraindications and cautions with the, those two herbs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, look, hops uh, is obviously traditionally contraindicated in, in depression, and that's fair enough. I mean, it, it, I think it tends to to, to well. For it to have its its major effect to do with sleep disorders because it's it's a, um, a binder to the melatonin one and two receptors. It's also uh, hypothermic, so mm-hmm. it reduces people's uh, body temperature, which is important to initiate sleep. Um, but you really wouldn't want those activities if somebody uh, was experiencing uh, depression, especially sort of depression where they're presenting with fatigue and and uh, and lassitude. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, kava, in respect to using it for depression, just like with hops, it's certainly contraindicated. However, the uh, the other point to do with that is if a person presents with anxious depression, so they've got low mood, but it's co-occurring with anxiety and probably the, the major driving um, aspect of their symptomatology is the anxiety and perhaps from the anxiety they're getting, getting a bit of low mood, then kava can still be used. There's, there's no problem with that whatsoever. I should also say that um, St John's Wort, you know, sometimes sort of bandied about as a, a great anxiety treatment. Uh, really, there's no evidence to support that. I mean, from what I understand, traditionally even, it doesn't tend to, uh, to, to be seen as uh, an anxiolytic. And if you look at the evidence to do with particular disorders such as OCD and social phobia, um, the RCTs haven't shown any effect uh, beyond placebo. So for me, yeah, pretty much in John's ward, that is is all about depression. I'm not saying that it may not have a synergistic effect with other herbs um, to improve anxiety. Um, but if we, if you look at one of our studies, which we conducted at UQ, combining St John's ward and kava, mm-hmm. um, it, it didn't tend to be effective uh, in reducing uh, anxiety. In people, I should say, with major depressive disorder. Right. What What were the results of that of that yeah. study? Yeah. Well, what the issue was we we chose a sample of people who had major depressive disorder, so they're you know quite depressed, as well as having high levels of anxiety. And we thought, well, St John's Wort good for depression, Carver good for anxiety. Gave the two together, um, but certainly the results in the, did not show that it, it tend to uh, tended to reduce their anxiety. Um, I think my uh, nor um, overall treat their depression in the first phase because it was a crossover study. I won't go into it too much, but yeah. um, did show that it was actually effective in the first phase for, de- for um, decreasing depression. Um, but um, this wasn't replicated in the next phase. So the sense we got from it was, well, this is a tough route to treat. Mm. And so I think practitioners need to be aware in terms of some of the limitations of what we do, 
but also the need to have an integrative approach for mental health because if people present with multiple comorbidities, so they may be depressed, they may have panic attacks, uh, panic attacks as well, sleep issues, uh, you know, when you start getting that level of comorbidity, unfortunately it is a tougher group to treat and we do need the help of psychological interventions as well as lifestyle uh, and to have sort of more of an integrated approach. Okay, so just a clinical note uh, for practitioners with regards to the use of these um, herbs and nutrients in pregnancy. So we know that fish oil is certainly indicated in pregnancy. Can we go down the list? St John's wort in pregnancy? I'll go and say this, Daniel. Look, without even going down the list, I can say that unfortunately there isn't a lot of safety data on most of the nutraceuticals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, you know, even something like St John's wort is generally contraindicated in in depression, however, uh, in uh, pregnancy. Uh, However, you know, a lot of the time it is based on a a caution Mm -hmm. rather than actually hard evidence from an an animal perspective or a human perspective. The only thing I'd say in terms of pregnancy, um, apart from sort of obviously good multi, uh, is omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah. What about Sammy? Yeah, look, that's one thing to, 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 to my knowledge is, is, is certainly not uh, given the, the absolute green light in terms of using it for, for depression, uh, for uh, pregnancy. pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, my sense is, is that I cannot see it being necessarily harmful mm. uh, to, to, the, uh, to the unborn. Uh, however, yeah, to, to my knowledge, it, it certainly isn't given, you know, uh, a medical clearance in terms of use yeah. uh, in a population. Yeah, so I think the, the caveat would be they may not be directly contraindicated for um, evidence of harm, but you have to carry the caution that it may not be beneficial and may cause harm, so you have to do that risk-benefit. Would, would you yeah, agree with that? that? Yeah, that's right, and that's why you know there needs to be obviously professional advice on whether to take these, these uh, nutraceuticals for pregnancy. It's not something which necessarily... Uh, you know, I can sort of advocate over a podcast. They, they, they must still take uh, professional advice mm. on, on their particular situation. Wholeheartedly supportive.